0: Welcome to Sojourner True. Thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. Today on our weekly roundtable amidst 18 people killed in mass shootings in the United States in just the past month, President Joe Biden takes on the pro-gun lobby announcing new but limited measures on gun, gun control and has named Dave Chipman, who headed a gun control organization as head of the U.S. Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives. Will this move widen the urban-rural divide when it comes to the right to own guns and what populations have stepped up their gun purchases. A medical doctor who is an expert on breathing shreds the defense of Derek Chauvin, who is on trial for the murder of Mr. George Floyd. In graphic testimony, Dr. Martin Tobin made it clear that George Floyd did not die of a drug overdose, with Chauvin's lawyers are claiming, but from lack of oxygen caused by Chauvin's and the other officers' actions to restrain Mr. Floyd. And thus far, the vote to unionize Amazon workers seemed to be going in the direction against unionization. Will this hold this amidst votes being challenged? What could be the wider implications? The International Criminal Court has ruled that Israeli actions in Gaza against Palestinian resistors can be investigated. Also, they said there were crimes on both sides, on the Israeli side as well as on the Palestinian side. Uh, President Netanyahu of of Israel, Prime Minister Netanyahu, has said that they will not recognize the International Criminal Court ruling. This, as President Biden reinstates aid to Palestinians that was cut by Donald Trump, but is standing with Netanyahu on the position against the International Criminal Court. And tension grows between Russia and the United States over the buildup of Russian troops at the Ukraine border. Our panelists are Jackie Goldberg, Laura Carlson, Dr. Gerald Horn.
1: The Hennepin County chief medical examiner who ruled George Floyd's death a homicide is expected to take the stand today in the murder and manslaughter trial of former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin. The medical examiner said Floyd's heart and lungs stopped amid law enforcement subdual restraint and neck compression. Christopher Martinez reports on yesterday's medical testimony.
2: Prosecutors in the Derek Chauvin trial brought in medical experts Thursday to testify about how George Floyd died after then police officer Chauvin choked him with his knee for nine and a half minutes. Dr. Martin Tobin had a simple answer.
3: Uh, Mr. Floyd died from a low level of oxygen and this caused damage to his brain that we see and it also caused a PEA arrhythmia that caused his heart to stop.
2: Tobin is a pulmonologist and critical care doctor who has studied and written about breathing. He explained that Floyd died because of being held prone with a knee on his back and neck, constricting his airway and preventing his lungs from taking in enough oxygen. He even pinpoints when it happened, since he's seen it happen often in the intensive care unit where he works. He noted a moment
3: in the video of Floyd. At the beginning, you can see his conscious. You can see slight flickering, and then it disappears. And, uh, so one, one second, he's alive, and one second, he's no longer.
2: I'm Christopher Martinez.
1: President Biden has made his first move on gun violence prevention. He announced a half dozen executive actions, including a measure aimed at ending the proliferation of
4: so-called ghost guns. These are guns that are homemade built from a kit that include directions on how to finish the firearm. You can go buy the kit. They have no serial numbers, so when they show up at a crime scene, they can't be traced. And the buyers aren't required to pass a background check to buy the kit, to make the gun. A second initiative will tighten
1: regulations on pistol-stabilizing braces, like the one used by the Boulder, Colorado shooter in a rampage last month that left 10 dead. The Justice Department is also publishing model legislation within 60 days intended to make it easier for states to adopt their own red flag laws. Such laws allow for individuals to petition a court to allow police to confiscate weapons from a person deemed to be a danger to themselves or others. Another mass shooting, this one in Texas, authorities say a man opened fire at a cabinet-making company where he worked, killing one person and wounding five others. He shot and wounded a state trooper before his arrest. No word on a possible motive. In South Carolina, authorities have confirmed that former NFL player Philip Adams was the gunman who killed five people, including a prominent doctor, his wife, and their two grandchildren. He later fatally shot himself. Police said they have not yet determined a motive. Adams suffered two concussions over three games in 2012 when he played for the Oakland Raiders. Adams' father said he blamed football for his son's problems, which might have led him to commit Wednesday's violence. An associate of Florida Republican Congressman Matt Gates is working toward a plea deal with federal prosecutors investigating a sex trafficking operation. The revelation that Gates' political ally, Joel Greenberg, is seeking to strike a plea deal with investigators came during a federal court hearing. A lawyer for Greenberg said after the hearing he was sure Matt Gates is not feeling very comfortable today. Federal prosecutors are examining whether Gates and Greenberg paid underage girls or offered them gifts or drugs in exchange for sex. The investigation into Gates hasn't led a conservative women's group to cancel his scheduled appearance at their Miami conference today. Gates is identified as the keynote speaker at the Women for America first event tonight, dubbed Barbecue Boots and Bluegrass. It's being held at former President Trump's Doral Resort. Longtime reporter and author Reese Ehrlich, whose voice was often heard on Pacifica Radio, has died of prostate cancer at the age of 73. Ehrlich worked as a journalist for more than 40 years. In 2012, he was awarded a prize for best radio explanatory journalism for his documentary Inside the Syrian Revolution. He also wrote about Syria in his book Inside Syria, the backstory of their civil war and what the world can expect. He conducted interviews with rebel leaders, regime supporters, and Syrian President Bashar al-Assad. He also wrote on Iran and Iraq, among many other topics. Ehrlich was always generous with his time and insights, appearing on Pacifica Radio and at benefits for its radio stations. I'm Eileen Alfonderry for Pacifica Radio.
0: And this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. Within the last 20 years, gun violence in the United States has dramatically risen. According to the Educational Fund to Stop Gun Violence, the age adjusted rate of firearm deaths per 100,000 people rose from 10.3% in uh, 1999 to 12 per 100,000% in 2017. Furthermore, compared to 22 other high-income nations, the United States' gun-related homicide rate is 25 times higher. Six of the 10 largest and most deadliest mass shootings in the United States in history took place within the last 10 years, this according to CNN. Among them are the Las Vegas shooting of 2017, in which 58 people were killed, the Orlando nightclub shooting of 2016, in which 49 people were killed, the Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting of 2012, in which 27 people were killed, the El Paso Walmart shooting of 2019, in which 22 people were killed, the Parkland High School shooting, in which 17 people were killed, among many others. And most recently on March 16, 2021, a series of mass shootings occurred at three spas or massage parlors in the metropolitan area of Atlanta, Georgia. Eight people were killed, six of whom were Asian, a and one other person was wounded. Uh, the suspect is a 21-year-old was taken in custody. A few days later on March 22nd, a mass shooting occurred at a King's Super supermarket in Boulder, Colorado. Ten people were killed, including a local on-duty police officer. And meanwhile, on Thursday, April 8th, the same day that President Biden announced moves against gun violence, a gunman killed at least one person and wounded at least five others, four of them critically, at a cabinet manufacturer in Bryan, Texas. Also on Thursday, at least five people were killed, including two children, in um, what police in New York County, South Carolina called a case of mass shooting. Despite all of this, gun sales in the United States continue to rise. Industry data and firearm background checks show nearly. 23 million guns were purchased in 2020, according to Small Arms Analytics. That represents a 65% increase in contrast with 2019, when 13.9 million guns were sold. Although a majority of those purchasing guns are white, there's also an increasing number of black gun ownership and black gun clubs, according to the National African American Gun Association. Association. So on Thursday, April 8th, um, President Joe Biden unveiled executive actions to address the surge in gun violence that he described as a blemish on the nation. Let's go to a clip now uh, from President Biden.
4: They were taking steps to confront not just the gun crisis, but what is actually a public health crisis. Nothing Nothing I'm about to recommend in any way impinges on the Second Amendment. They're phony arguments. I asked the Attorney General and his team to identify for me immediate, concrete actions I could take now without having to go through the Congress. And today I'm announcing several initial steps my administration is taking to curb this epidemic of gun violence. Much more need be done, but the first first want to rein in the proliferation of so-called ghost guns. They have no serial numbers, so when they show up at a crime scene, they can't be traced. And the buyers aren't required to pass a background check to buy the kit. With online sales and ghost guns, times and trafficking methods have changed, and we have to adjust. We also have to ask the Justice Department to release a new annual report. This report will better help policymakers address firearms trafficking as it is today. We want to treat pistols modified with stabilizing braces with the seriousness they deserve. A stabilizing brace hook and a pencil essentially makes that pistol a hell of a lot more accurate and a mini rifle. As a result, it's more lethal, effectively turning into a short barreled rifle. Fourthly, during my campaign for president, I wanted to make it easier for states to adopt extreme risk protection order laws. They're also called red flag laws. These laws allow a police or family member to petition a court in their jurisdiction and say, I want you to temporarily remove from the following people any firearm they may possess, because they're a danger and a crisis. They're presenting a danger to themselves and to others. And the court makes a ruling. I asked the Justice Department to publish a model red flag legislation so states can start crafting their own laws right now. They've offered plenty of thoughts and prayers, members of Congress. But they passed not a single new federal law to reduce gun violence. Enough prayers. Time for some action. I believe the Senate immediately passed three House passed bills to close loopholes that allow gun purchasers purchasers, to bypass the background checks. The only industry in America, a billion-dollar industry, that can't be sued, has exempt from being sued, are gun manufacturers. But this is the only outfit that is exempt from being sued. If I get one thing on my list, the Lord came down and said, Joe, you get one of these, give me that one. We should also ban assault weapons and high capacity magazines in this country. There's no reason someone needs a weapon of war with 100 rounds, 100 bullets that can be fired. And three, reauthorize the violence against Women act, which is so-called close. The boyfriend and stalking loopholes to keep guns out of the hands of people bound by a court to be an abuser and continuing threat. We have so many people dying every single day from gun violence in America. There's a blemish on our character as a nation. Let me say to all of you, God bless you, but most importantly, the memory of all many of you have lost in the senseless gun violence
0: All righty, there you go. I'd like to welcome our panelists uh, now. I'd like to welcome Laura Carlson, director of the America's Program, who works with Just Associates, an international feminist organization. Laura Carlson is based in Mexico City, where she's a regular contributor to America's Updater, Foreign Policy and Focus, Counterpunch, and several Spanish-language publications. Uh, Laura Carlson is also a television host and commentator on globalization, the drug war, immigration, and gender issues for various international news outlets. Laura, welcome.
5: Thank you, Margaret. Good to be here. Good to be here.
0: And Dr. Uh, Gerald Horn, before actually, let's just go and welcome Dr. Gerald Horn, Morris Professor of History and African American Studies at the University of Houston. He's written more than 30 books. His most recently published book is The Bittersweet Science, Racism, Racketeering, and the Political Economy of Boxing. He's also the author of The Dawning of the Apocalypse The Roots of Slavery, White Supremacy, and Settler Colonialism and Capitalism in the Long 16th Century. Dr. Horn, welcome. Thank you for inviting me and dr and J- Jackie Goldberg uh, dr Goldberg <laughs> well I think I've no given doctor. you a phd Jackie um, and well deserved I might say Jackie Goldberg is a governing board member of the Los Angeles School board district 5 she's a former member of the California state Assembly Jackie Goldberg had previously served as a member of the Los Angeles school City council and before being elected to the council she served on and was later the president of the Los Angeles School Board. So Jackie Goldberg, PhD or not, welcome.
6: Uh, Thank you very much for having me. Good
0: to be here. All righty. So Laura Carlson, we'll start with you because... The whole saga and the back and forth and the history of the fights around uh, guns and the right to own weapons and gun violence has continued, it seemed, forever uh, in the United States. And now uh, Joe Biden has announced uh, the plans that we just heard in the clip, but they're very limited. Uh, Keep in mind the urban-rural divide on the one hand, um, just about everybody I know who lives in urban areas, they're all for people having guns and against um, the government limiting uh, weapons. That's really interesting. And then you also see that uh, the purchase of guns have actually greatly increased uh, this year. Having to do with COVID, but uh, undoubtedly among Black people, anyway, the rise of uh, white supremacist organizations, including the the riot um, of. Uh, on January 6th, but even prior to that, you saw the uh, gun sales rise. Laura Carlson, your comments on that, and also use the opportunity to comment on the latest that we're seeing on the pandemic. We can't forget coronavirus, um, The uh, Numbers are beginning to spike in about five states, Michigan, really a lot of concern about that and a lot of concern around the variants and also the unequal distribution of vaccines around the world. So quite a lot to cover there from guns to the pandemic. Laura Carlson.
5: Right. Well, I think this is a brave and very necessary step of Joe Biden, and especially a little bit surprising because we talked last week about how he seemed to be placing this on the back burner because it's such a volatile issue in domestic politics there. But you can tell from the segment that, that he has a genuine conviction regarding the necessity to regulate these. To me, at first, it seemed like extremely minimal measure to uh, try to regulate these ghost guns because it's so easy to buy ready-to-shoot guns anywhere. Uh, But then when I read that there were 10,000 of these recovered by law enforcement last year or in in 2019, it's really not that minimal because you can assume that these were recovered because many of them at least were actively used in crimes. And then this other point about the traceability of them is very important too that there's a tendency for organizations that don't want to be traced to buy this type of a weapon. And that, as experts have noted, usually means organized crime and right-wing militias. They have no serial numbers on them. You know, there's no way to, to find a gun at a crime scene and be able to use that as evidence to try to resolve the crime. So that's, that is actually very important. And some of the measures... The other measures are are good, Um, but again, he himself admits that without Congress banning assault weapons, closing the loopholes in background checks, and a number of other measures, uh, it will be difficult to make a a dent in the whole thing. I was interested by an op-ed in the New York Times that said that we should not be focusing on banning assault weapons because it's too controversial by someone who's led the gun control movement at a time because his, his brother was a victim. And it, it really reminded me that one of the big missing pieces in this whole discussion is the enormous number of guns that are being smuggled from the United States into Mexico directly in the hands of organized, organized crime. And that includes those assault weapons, which are very important for the violence of organized crime and continuing to terrorize communities throughout Mexico. It's, really, it's very, very important that this issue of the arms that are going south of the border and causing so much bloodshed here be included when we think about what's happening. Now, of course, as you mentioned, we're not just facing pushback on the issue of gun control, but also an active counteroffensive. In Tennessee, the governor just signed a law that would allow adults in the state to carry a handgun to a filter openly without a permit, background check, or training. And we're going to see more laws like these in, in red states. We've been talking a lot about the pandemic uh, on a global level as we begin to see the numbers rise again and expecting them to rise even more in countries that celebrated Easter vacations because people just kind of let go. Uh, which is somewhat understandable but extremely dangerous. And the biggest issue that's coming up now is precisely the global distribution of, of uh, of the vaccines, the 13 vaccines that are currently available on a global level. It's completely unequal and completely unfair, and the multilateral organizations do not seem to be able to handle this issue because of what they call vaccine nationalism where countries that have production, like the United States, of course, and other developed countries are hoarding that, in a sense, Um, and there are very, very few vaccines arriving in third-world countries, in poor countries, and their ability to get those out into the countryside is also very limited. So there's efforts by the United Nations to try to resolve that, but if they can't get their hands on the vaccine, They can't do anything about it. And one of the biggest barriers to this, and this is, I think, probably the single thing that's most important to do, is to lift those patents in the World Trade Organization that allow the pharmaceutical companies to restrict production of life-saving vaccines at a moment in which if if, if the planet as a whole does not massively vaccinate we're going to begin to see those variants we're going to be we're going to be pretty much lost no matter what country you're living in in terms of of defeating the virus
0: right thank you for that uh laura carlson and uh jackie goldberg uh your thoughts on this here because every time a a major mass shooting happens, and it's horrible to be able to talk to them about major and minor because they're all just horrific, the loss of human life. You know, there's a lot of uh, people saying, well, after such a horrific event, you know, something has got to happen about the the weapons, particularly those that are really military grade, you know, killing a lot of people uh, very, very rapidly. But then again, very, very little happens. And, uh, you know, I don't know if one is to believe now that there will be any inroads uh, whatsoever, uh, given the numbers of people killed just in the last month. Your thoughts on that, on what uh, the president has is proposing, but also on the pandemic, people tend to uh, kind of not forget about it, but with the vaccines, the rollout of the vaccines that seem to be going pretty well in the United States, although California, the number of Johnson & Johnson vaccines they were to get uh, as part of Biden's program to step up um, vaccinations in particularly hard-hit communities will be undermined by that. So your thoughts on, on both of these crises around guns and also on the pandemic, Jackie Goldberg.
6: I think the uh, thank you. I think the firearms sales business is really uh, not new. Every time a Democrat wins office, people buy guns. So that that's something that just keeps happening, and it keeps happening. What is new is is that the uh, number of African Americans who bought guns after uh, the uh, insurrection in January, January 6th, that is new. And a lot of the interviews with people who have been first-time gun buyers have been the same over and over again. They said, you know what, I thought that the police could protect me, but now I'm not so sure. So I'm, I'm not so sure. I'm just going to have a gun. And the big states, the ten big states, what, Michigan, New Jersey, D.C., Utah, Idaho, Maryland, Montana, Georgia, Alaska, and Minnesota, all had massive increases in firearms uh, after the January 6th insurrection. So I think what we're seeing here from Biden is an attempt to do what he can do without any help from Congress, because he isn't going to get any help from Congress. Congress, uh, particularly, you know, our our Republicans, but there are some Democrats as well in certain states. But Congress has made it very clear uh, after the uh, Sandy Hook shooting that it's never going to do anything about this. Uh, unless uh, there was some way to force people to do it. And, uh, and that's just the most disgusting thing I've ever heard of. However, I will say there is one thing that Biden keeps talking about, and I don't know that it can get done, but I do think it's important to talk about it. And that is the notion that the uh, gun industry, the weapons industry, is the only industry where you can't sue them over uh, <clears throat> uh, damages uh, for their uh, use and uh, misuse of their of their products, every other com- company of any size in America can be sued over that, and I think that's a big change. As to the virus, we're just stuck with people who aren't willing to uh, wear masks and so forth. We are doing better in California, but we do not we have not gotten down from that plateau of three to seven hundred new cases in L.A. County, for example, a day. Uh, the infection rate has gone down, but what we 're facing here is a lack of testing throughout the country because it is really only through testing and tracking that you can deal with the outbreaks before they become like Michigan way out of control and really now there 's not too much you can do about it. I think that the international issue is is that at some point we need to say that you don't have to uh, companies are not allowed to keep uh, private their formulas so that they have to be made public so that they can be reproduced and made in parts of the world where they could do it if they had the formulas in their hands. I think the it, the first world, quote unquote, that has all the uh, doses better figure out that even if you vaccinate 100 percent of your population, you're not safe as long as India and Brazil and other places are just dying in huge, vast numbers. Uh, And the outbreaks there are just unbelievable. So we have a lot to do to try to educate Americans that uh, that they have a personal responsibility to look out for their fellow human beings. We've got a big, big way to go on that one. And we also, I think, need to continue to tell people that it's safe to get vaccinated and that the vaccinations will help us return to normal life. If we can get vaccinations high enough, for example, in the school district I'm on the board of, L.A. Unified, we are now vaccinating at our schools. We are now vaccinating the families of the students. Why? Because the kids are not coming back to school as long as they live in a um, multi-generational family because there's no vaccination yet for the children. A child gets sick, doesn't know they have symptoms doesn't know they're sick because they're symptomless. They come home and they infect an older generation person who has not yet been vaccinated. So we have have begun uh, yesterday, actually, uh, vaccinating uh, families of children going back to school at our schools. And in another week or so, we will have at least uh, 25 vaccination centers on school sites. Why on school sites? It's a trusted location. We've been trying to tell the county, and I think other people have told the county, that there are a lot of people who don't trust our government for good and bad reasons. Uh, certainly new immigrants to the United States have good reasons not to trust the United States. But we're getting, for example, more undocumented people able to be uh, vaccinated because at our schools, they know that we don't ask about their documentation when they enroll their children, so they feel it's safe to go get a vaccine there. So it's important that the vaccination methodology understand who it is that is suspicious and makes it available to them in locations that they trust instead of in these big, you know, 5,000 uh, doses a day at, uh, at a uh, university or on other big Parking lot campuses. I'm not saying close those down. There's, there's, they're doing vaccines every day. But they're not going to reach the folks that we're most worried about in the black and brown communities of Southern California because those folks are not able, A, to get an appointment and B, are not going to go to a location they don't trust. So I think there's a lot we can do. I think uh, that we're learning. Uh, But I'm very afraid that we're not looking at this internationally nearly enough to understand the relationship between getting uh, really a handle on the pandemic needs to be worldwide, not just in the United States or in any other part of the world.
0: Right. Thank you, Jackie Goldberg. And and Dr. Gerald Horn. I mean, there's a thread, uh, although it does not seem so on the face of it, with um, uh, the reaction to the right to uh, bear arms, the right to have a gun, right? And also the mistrust of government. Um, in some communities, and that has also bled over not only with people increasingly buying guns, but black people in particular um, buying guns. And I, I just want to say that I ran across an, an article, it's reported in Newsweek, that um, white lives matter protests are being planned for April the 11th. They're going to be taking place in Huntington Beach in California, in New York, in Fort Worth, Texas, Chicago, Illinois. At least those are the ones that we know of right now. Um, They're saying they're not expecting them to be, you know, massive. But nevertheless, that is part of the context uh, that uh, Black people, other people of color uh, have to face. And no surprise, I don't think that the the uh, gun sales among black people have gone up, especially, by the way, more so than among black women who are purchasing guns and joining uh, these uh, black gun clubs uh, in in great numbers. And then that mistrust goes, bleeds into the fact that, uh, for example, in Mississippi, they're saying that they've got 73,000 vaccine slots available, but very few takers. Part of that, of course, are the Republican men, 40% of them who are saying, well, they're not going to take the vaccine, but also the mistrust of government given the treatment of black people at the hands of the U.S. healthcare uh, industry historically, but also continuing to today. So Dr. Horn, putting those pieces together for us.
7: Well, I think it's appropriate, on April 9th, to mention that this is the 123rd birthday of the great revolutionary artist and actor and activist Paul Robson and the fact that the tallest tree in our forest could be chopped down by the government is another factor that
3: feeds this
7: rampant mistrust and distrust of the governmental authorities. Plus, there's an added factor with regard to guns, because we all know that the Second Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, which supposedly provides the legal rationale for this individual gun ownership, was enacted in the first instance in order to make sure that slave revolts and revolts of the indigenous could be contained and arrested. That's what makes it so ironic when one tries to invoke history in order to explain contemporary events, Folks oftentimes try to suggest, well, that happened hundreds of years ago. What's the relevance? Well, obviously it's relevant because that's the legal rationale that's still being invoked that helps to explain all of these gun massacres. And then I should also say that there's a further rationale that the right wing invokes. And you saw this manifested on January 6, 2021, which is they say that there should be mass gun ownership so that if a government, in their estimation, gets out of hand, there could be a mass uprising against this government. And this is not Gerald Horn hyperbole. This is straight from the mouths of the ultra-right wing. One heartening aspect uh, of this current controversy is that I noticed in his press conference, President Biden mentioned, quote, international embarrassment, unquote as a reason to try to circumscribe these, this gun ownership question. And that's a very important factor because historically we know that because of the strength of the right wing in this country, we who have been struggling for progress have had to rely heavily, perhaps unduly, upon international pressure and the fact that the President of the United States invokes this same factor is very, very important. And with regard to... Uh, black people buying guns. Well, you're probably familiar with the NFAC, the No Effing Around Coalition, uh, which has been armed and has been mobilized in various cities, particularly in Louisville, Kentucky, uh, which has caused the arm of the law to come down heavily upon them. But I don't see that as necessarily a passing fancy. I think you're going to see more of this. Precisely because, as you have suggested, people feel that they cannot rely upon the authorities to protect them, as the George Floyd case so richly illustrates. And I think we should also expect that the right wing will be gaining in strength in coming months because the Wall Street Journal reports just this morning that the House Minority Leader, Kevin McCarthy, himself has raised about a quarter of a billion dollars in 2021 itself. Now, you would think that the Republican Party would be scarred by the January 6th insurrection, but you would be wrong because they're raising money hand over fist. Now, the pandemic, I think that we need to realize that it's going to have enormous impact on the economy insofar as this working-from-home phenomenon is calling causing... To cut back on renting commercial real estate, which means that the tax revenue that comes from commercial real estate will probably be reduced, which also suggests that services will be reduced. At the same time, when workers are working from home, that means that they're basically absorbing electricity costs and other costs that would otherwise be uh, spent by the employer and we're going to have to figure out how to deal with that particular issue and we're also going to have to figure out what's going to happen with these empty hotels these cruise ships that are not sailing these restaurants that are empty the car rental services that are not seeing their services being used as well and so once again it's going to call for an increase in taxes, which is something that the right wing and the Republicans and their constituency uh, see
0: as something that needs to be avoided at all costs. Right, thank you for that, Dr. Horn. Uh, We're going to take our, just fascinating, absolutely fascinating. We're going to take our station break now. When we return, we are going to be discussing the latest in the uh, Siobhan uh, trial. Uh, the man who's being tried the police officer who's being tried for the murder of George Floyd and then we'll touch a bit on the international front uh, is it drums of war being beat in relation to what's happening at the border of the Ukraine with uh, Russia and the International Criminal Court has made a ruling that um, Benjamin Netanyahu of Israel doesn't much like stay with us we'll be right back
5: so if you want big tree not a small.
0: The late, great Bob Marley Small Acts. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. If you are a member of Facebook, you can like and friend us on Facebook, our handle on Instagram and Twitter at So True Radio. We are nationwide and worldwide on SoundCloud. And today we'd like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in West Virginia, our SoundCloud listeners in West Virginia and internationally. We want to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners through. Throughout the Caribbean region and we want to acknowledge the crisis that's happening in the nation island nation of St. Vincent and the Grenadines where 16,000 people have to be evacuated uh, because there is a, a threat of a volcanic uh, explosion happening there so our hearts uh, go out uh, to them all who are impacted. Uh, it is our weekly roundtable and our panelists are Laura Carlson, Jackie Goldberg, and Dr. Gerald Horn. We're now going to turn our attention to the uh, Derek Chauvin trial, the white police officer accused of killing um, George Floyd. And on Thursday, uh, April the 8th, Dr. Martin J. Tobin, a pulmonologist and critical care physician, and expert also on breathing, uh, said that any normal person would have died from being pinned under Chauvin's knee for nine and a half minutes. Let's go to a clip in here from the doctor
3: mr. Floyd died from a low level of oxygen the cause of the low level of oxygen was shallow breathing small breaths the main forces that are going to lead to the shallow breath are going to be that he's turned prone on the street that he has the handcuffs in place combined with the street and then that he has a knee on his neck and then that he has a knee on his back and on his side. On the left side of his lung, it was almost like a surgical pneumonectomy. It was almost to the effect as if a surgeon had gone in and removed the lung. You see his knuckle against the tire. This tells you that he has used up his resources, and he is now literally trying to breathe with his fingers and knuckles. When you have to breathe through a narrow passageway, it's like uh, breathing through a drinking straw. But it's much worse than that.
0: Uh, much worse than that. Um, Laura Carlson, uh, we'll start with you because uh, earlier in the week of uh, the week of the trial. Like on Wednesday, a prosecution expert um, kind of implied that it wasn't just Siobhan's knee on the neck of George Floyd that contributed to his death. Um, And you have uh, the L.A. Police Department Sergeant Jody Steiger, uh, a veteran use-of-force trainer, um, said his review of the video evidence in Floyd's arrest indicated that Siobhan was also using a pain compliance technique On Floyd's handcuff, left hand. We've heard a lot about the knee on the neck, but we haven't heard about what else this man was doing in torturing and killing uh, George Floyd. Um, Just your reaction to these revelations that are now coming out, uh, Laura Carlson. Well, this
5: was. By far the most damning testimony that we've seen so far because it was so technically precise and uh, contained so many details and absolutely discarded the hypothesis of the defense that this was a due from a fentanyl over overdose.
0: Jackie Goldberg, we'll go to you because in addition to what I raised with uh, Laura Carlson, the jury was shown free frames taken by body camera of one of the other officers or not Siobhan um, that uh, sh- uh, that showed Siobhan's hand, um, Siobhan's hand Pressing into and manipulating the palm of Floyd's hand as George Floyd, already handcuffed, was already in a prone position on the pavement, pinned under the weight of not only Siobhan, but three police officers and also noted that the handcuffs on George Floyd were not double locked, meaning they could end up uh, getting tighter as the person being detained moves. And and George Floyd was clearly trying to put himself in a position where he was able to, to breathe. But his life actually didn't last that long under the circumstances. Jackie Goldberg.
6: I think that I think that they've been very, very, very clear in pers- in their case on the issue of drugs and other issues. Uh, his prior heart problems perhaps were the reason. No, I think the the testimony yesterday by the specialist uh, was uh, totally damning to the uh, to the uh, defense's notion that they're going to try to put this off us somehow or another uh, the problem of his drug use or whatever. I think the real important things that are happening in this case are the methodical, step-by-step look at the forensic issues. Right now, I believe there's a forensic pathologist testifying right now. Uh, And what they're trying to do in the prosecution is to make it clear to the jury... That all this crap about uh, that somehow or another this had nothing really to do with the knee on his neck for nine plus minutes. This really had nothing to do with how they handcuffed him. This had really nothing to do with how they laid him uh, in the the pavement. It had nothing to do with the fact that even when he stopped breathing that they tried not one thing to revive him or get him to be breathing again, but continued with their knee on the neck. So I think... They've made the case uh, excellently, not just by looking at what the observers saw and not just looking at all of the rest of this, but by looking at the science of what they found. And what they found is, is that he died because they made him unable to breathe. And when Chauvin makes someone unable to breathe, he is killing them. And that's the end of that story. So I think, I think the prosecution has been wonderful in the sense that they have taken each piece of forensic evidence, each piece of evidence about what happened in the death, each piece of evidence having to deal with how he died and what the, the cause of death, all of that is, I hope, very convincing to all 12 jurors. Our only fear always is, is that it only takes one person to say, well, I still have some doubt, uh, to screw everything up. So, but I think the prosecution has used the scientists' And the science of this very, very effectively.
1: Right,
0: and and Dr. Gerald Horn. I mean, you know, we all saw uh, basically a public lynching, right? Um, and now we're. You know, there are all the little subtleties that you're seeing. I mean, I noticed looking at some of the footage how uh, Shavad was kind of moving his knee around, kind of you know, just sort of digging in. Um, what he did with the with his foot, whether he lifted it or or lowered it down all having to do with, um, to me, just torture. And now what they were doing with his hand and the fact that after I think five minutes and three seconds, uh, George Floyd was no longer able to breathe. Uh, But yet, even though after the great outpouring that happened uh, after the world witnessed that, a recent poll that was done shows that the the support in terms of having to what people are calling to fund the police, which doesn't mean people are saying get rid of the police, they're saying that more resources going into the community, but that uh, support for that seems to ha- be falling now. And I wonder, you know, how quickly we forget perhaps this trial and what people are seeing now on television will bring some of this back. But, uh, Dr. Horn, uh, your thoughts on that, but I'm afraid, Dr. Horn, I'll also need to ask you to weigh in on what the heck is happening with this vote for to unionize Amazon workers, a totally different, uh, different topic, but um, where unionization doesn't seem to be on the winning side right now. We'll see if that shifts, and what are the implications of that, Dr. Gerald Horn?
7: Well, first of all, regard to the defense of the police uh, slogan that has been raised consistently by activists if you look at this morning's usa today what you'll take away is that the police have been moving in the opposite direction and you need to look no further than Minneapolis itself and the building where Derek Chauvin is being tried where there are concrete barriers camouflage men with rifles the Minnesota National Guard razor wire and one has to ask what kind of environment does this present and what impact will that have on the jury and speaking of the jury it's important to note what i've taken away from conversations with various lawyers who feel that there might be saboteurs on the jury and so far as you had jurors who before they were in panel suggested that they knew nothing or heard nothing about this case which is quite curious given the round-the-clock uh, coverage that is received, and it's already been suggested you only need one juror to hold out to bring a mistrial, which, of course, could lead to another trial that could end up with a second with the same result. And I agree that the pulmonologist who testified presented powerful testimony, but keep in mind that he was a prosecution witness. The defense will bring on their own witnesses who inevitably will contradict this witness that testified yesterday, which then leaves certain jurors in a state of confusion and will give them a way out if they decide to vote to uh, make for a mistrial. One heartening aspect is the breach of the blue wall of silence, the fact that the police chief himself testified against Derek Chauvin, not to mention an expert witness from the Los Angeles Police Department of all places testifying against uh, Derek Children. This is quite unusual because usually, uh, as noted, there's this solidarity uh, between and amongst police officers. With regard to this Amazon vote, we'll have to wait and see. The final tally uh, has not emerged. But I think that if an after-action report is conducted by the union, and if it's an honest report, they very well may conclude that this overall right-wing atmosphere in the United States is causing many working-class people to decide to compromise with capital. I think that that's the import of the pro-GOP vote in South Texas amongst uh, many uh, Mexican-American workers, for example. That's the import of Mr. Trump getting 75 million votes, believe it or not, in November 2020. But once again, let's uh, hold on until the tally is made uh, altogether.
0: Right. And, and looking at the clock, uh, Dr. Horn, before we bring Laura Carlson back, or her, her phone uh, is apparently working now. I wondered if you wanted to talk about uh, just briefly about the international front. You have the Iran nuclear deal talks, um, some discussion happening with the United States, but also um, the United States, CNN is reporting is considering sending warships to the Black Sea in the next few weeks. Uh, this having to do with uh, the Ukraine and and Russia's increased, reportedly increased military uh, presence on Ukraine's eastern border. Um, Dr. Horn?
7: Well, that latter point is particularly worrisome. Uh, keep in mind that Russia has been amassing its military uh, along the border with Ukraine. President Zelensky of Ukraine, uh, in this sort of dime store Kissinger Act, is on his way to Turkey in order to try to uh, entice the Turks to break their developing relationship with Moscow and weigh in on behalf of the Ukraine, Uh, it's very disturbing, as well as the fact that uh, Zelensky and the Ukraine are applying to be members of NATO. If that is accepted, which I don't think it will, but if it is accepted, that means that the United States would have a treaty obligation to intervene on behalf of the Ukraine in case of some sort of military conflagration with Russia, And you have a similar situation unfolding in the South China Sea with regard to U.S. battleships cruising in Chinese territorial waters, at least that's China's uh, estimation of the situation, but that is also connected to the third point you mentioned, the nuclear talks in Vienna between the United States and Iran, indirect talks, not direct talks, but I think that Washington feels overstretched dealing with Russia and China and feels that perhaps it needs to cut a deal with Iran. The difficulty there is that the Israel lobby is hotly opposed to such a deal. Recall how Benjamin Netanyahu came to talk to Congress, not at the invitation of President Obama, but the invitation of Republicans to denounce this deal. At the same time, Washington feels that with regard to this June election that will take place in Iran that those they consider to be, quote, hardliners, unquote, will have their chances improved if there is no pact, no agreement between the United States and Iran. And, of course, Washington is also concerned about this multi-billion dollar trade and investment deal between China and Iran and would like to see that particular relationship disrupted.
0: Right. Thank you, Dr. Horn. And Laura Carlson, I'm afraid you'll have the last word. Apologies to you, uh, Jackie Goldberg, because one of the things uh, happening in terms of the Israeli-Palestinian front with Biden and uh, putting back, giving back some aid that Trump had cut, uh, but also the International Criminal Court um, ruling that they have to look at uh, what are considered war crimes committed by um, Israel. And they're also saying it happened on on both sides, uh, Laura Carlson. I wonder a, a quick comment from you on the international front. Again, we're not hearing Laura, so I, I guess her her phone didn't work. So Jackie, you yeah. you you get a shot at it here then.
6: <laughs> okay, very good. Well, you know the restoration of the 200 million dollars uh, that Trump slashed is very helpful. It was particularly uh, egregious when he cut the 25 million that was for the underfunded East German Jerusalem hospital that was the, co- the main place for COVID crisis. And Trump cuts the money to that hospital, but that's been restored. However, only half of it was restored. It used to be $400 million. This is now $200 million. Uh, and, of course, Israel is objecting, but I do believe it's a big step forward to at least begin to do this. Um, I also uh, think that we have to take a look at the trial of Netanyahu. That's going on. Uh, it's coming out each and every day that he has done incredible things uh, in terms of paying off media to uh, give him favorable, uh, favorable, uh, case, uh, favorable uh, information in their news. So. Uh, I think also that it's important that uh, the uh, news site's uh, CEO warned to drop the story on the PM's wife lest it thwart a merger. There are many times that Netanyahu is now being accused, and the trial is showing that he is a corrupt politician that used things his his power uh, to yeah. uh, get himself reelected in these last four or five elections that keep coming up. So I think that the Israeli situation is fluid. I do not believe that Biden, however, intends to try to, quote, solve the two-state solution. He seems to be backing away from it. I think that's yeah. very disappointing, uh, but maybe that will change during the term his office. But I do think it's very helpful for UNRWA to get funding again. That's the United Nations Refugee Fund, and I think it's very important that some of the funding to uh, restore uh, water, clean water, to restore schools. In uh, Gaza, all of those things uh, are now uh, more possible because of some renewed funding from the Biden administration.
0: (laughs) Right. Thank you for that, Jackie Goldberg. Apologies to Laura Carlson there for the technical difficulties. We are out of time. Another fascinating uh, roundtable. I'd like to thank our panelists. Today's show produced by me, that's Margaret Prescott. I'd like to thank our assistant producer, Romero Funes, our audio engineer, Kiana Williams. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. And y'all, please stay safe.